Welcome to the Liberty Podcast. We're so excited that you're interested in the teaching ministry of Liberty Bible Church. We're a multi-site church that exists to share the love of Christ across Northwest Indiana. If you're looking for a church home, please check us out at our website, findliberty.net. Thanks again for joining us as together we're transformed by the teaching from the Word of God. Uh, Well, good morning and welcome to Liberty Bible Church. My name is Tim and I'm the lead pastor here. And we're really glad to have you with us this morning for Easter celebration. If you have a Bible, you can turn it to John chapter 11. That's where we'll be this morning. And so I'm going to read our text, John 11, uh, pray for us, and then unpack what is one of my favorite stories in the New Testament. So John 11, verses 1 through 6, hear now the word of the Lord. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And this is God's word. Let me pray. Father, we open your word because we believe Jesus is as present and real in this world today as he was when John 11 was written and when all of these things happened. And he wants all of us to know him and to experience the life that he has for us. So Father, open our hearts to your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Few things are worse than asking for help and getting rejected. When I was a junior in high school, I played for our high school golf team and Every year, one of the biggest tournaments of the year was the Hendricks County Golf Tournament. I'm from Brownsburg, Indiana, downstate a little bit from here. And I had won the tournament the year before. Our high school had won many years in a row. So I always looked forward to this tournament. But this year, I was a little bit nervous. We were playing at Prestwick Country Club in Avon, Indiana. And at Prestwick, there were houses lining the fairway throughout the entire course, which meant if you missed a shot a little bit, you hit a house. And through my years at playing at Presswick Country Club, I had hit a number of houses. So the tournament comes, I'm warming up on the range before the round. One of the worst things that can happen to a golfer happened to me. I got the shanks. More golfers in this room, all right. First service, like two guys were like, oh Lord. And if, listen, if you're playing golf later today, I apologize for referencing that. And if you don't know what golf is or the shanks are, let me explain. The shanks are where you, you do your normal golf swing, but you hit the ball on the inside of the club and it just shoots straight right. Now what's terrifying about this is you don't know what you're doing wrong. Feels like a normal swing. You do your swing, you expect a good shot, but no, it shoots straight right. So this is happening to me before the Hendricks County Golf Tournament, Presswood Country Club. I'm terrified. So I do it a few times. I call my coach over. Coach, come over here. I swing once. 
Ball shoots straight right. I turn around. I look at my coach. He looks at me. Not encouraging. He says, swing again. So I swing again. I shoot it. Ball goes straight right again. I turn around. I look at my coach. He looks back at me and says, I can't help you. (laughs) To which I respond, why not? And he says, listen, your swing is so messed up. If I tried to help you right now, it would only make things worse. Good luck today. (laughs) And then he walked away. It's like the worst coaching in the history. Like, why are you even here if this is the kind of coaching you're going to provide for me? And sure enough, I walked down on that course. I hit balls straight right all over the place. If there was a, a child playing in one of those yards, the child was not safe. If there was a dog sunbathing in the yard, that dog was at risk. It was a train wreck of around. But it was brutal to ask my coach for help and him just to say, no. It's hard to ask for help and be rejected. And listen, in the grand scheme of the universe, a high school golf coach not helping you, pretty small. But I would imagine almost all of us at some point have asked a friend for help and been rejected. Maybe you asked a parent for help and got abandoned. And the most painful experience of all, which I'm sure all of us have had in this room, is we've asked God for help, and he didn't help. It's actually what is happening in this story in John 11, and it's what we're going to talk about this morning. Friends of Jesus ask him for help, and he does not help. And as we unpack this story, we'll see a number of things, the the problem of following the person of Jesus, who he is, and the promise Jesus makes to you and I. So the problem, the person, the promise. Well, let's, let's start with the problem. And the last two verses I read for you, hopefully you caught how they don't really go together. Verse 5 we read, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. He loved them. Verse 6. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, they've sent people to Jesus saying, Jesus, you love Lazarus. He's sick. Come and help. So when Jesus heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. He did not go to help. Why not? Of course, in many ways, that question is irrelevant because we've all asked it at some point. We've asked God for help, and he's not done what we asked for. And while we can have an answer to that question, ultimately, we just wanted him to come and help, and he didn't. And that's the experience of Mary and Martha here. And in some ways, that's a philosophical problem Philosophers, human beings have debated that question for centuries. Why do bad things happen if there is a good and all-powerful God who could stop them and help us? And in many ways, the Christian faith is just believing verses 5 and 6 together. Jesus loved Martha and Mary and her sister, Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus, even though he stayed two days longer where he was. To be a Christian, to be a person of faith, is ultimately to believe God loves me 
even when I ask Him for help, and He doesn't help. You've got to hold those two verses together. But ultimately, this isn't a philosophical problem as much as it is a, pers- a personal one. Can you believe that God loves you even when He doesn't help you in the way you want Him to help you? And when we come to that experience of life, when we ask God for help and He doesn't come in the way we want Him to, listen, there, there are probably a million responses to that, but let me summarize those million responses into to four. When you ask God for help and He doesn't help, I think you can respond in probably one of four ways. One way is, is angry atheism. Samuel Beckett, a famed atheist, once described God as God doesn't exist the, and then he filled in the blank with an expletive, which I won't share with you on Easter. But you find that with a lot of atheism. God doesn't exist, and I'm going to cuss him out. Which seems strange that you would be convinced a being does not exist and also want to cuss that being out. But it makes sense. Because the conclusion of atheism is, I need help. And there is no one who will ever come to help because there is no one to help. And I think the only response to that is anger. So angry atheism is one response. Another response, which probably makes up more of us in this room than we might want to acknowledge, is indifferent agnosticism. Which is you ask God for help and he doesn't respond and over time, you just, you just stop asking. Your prayer life dries up. Maybe you stop reading scripture. You stop coming to church. And over time, yeah, maybe there's a God, maybe not. All you know is you asked for help and you didn't get any. And so over time, your faith, your belief in God has just become irrelevant. It's indifferent. I asked for help, I got none. And so it's not even something you think about much. Third is indifference religion. There are some religious folks who, when they find out something bad has happened to you, they don't want to sit in what is bad that has happened. They just want to make it all better in the moment. God's got this. It's all good. God works together for those who love you. What happened to you is really not that bad. Even though you asked God for help and he didn't respond, that's not a big deal. Don't think about it. Ultimately, that's not very helpful because, listen, if I was really angry at my high school golf coach for walking away from me for some irrelevant tournament, to most of you, not to me, of course, like how much more in this universe when you need God to help and he doesn't come, to just say to someone, that's not a big deal, that doesn't take seriously the pain that that moment leads us into. It's indifference. It's not indifference without belief in God, but it's indifference with belief in God, and I don't think either are very good or biblical. So what's the, good, what's the fourth option? What's maybe the option that I would encourage us to pursue when we come to those moments? And yes, Jesus loves me, but he's staying put. He's not coming to help. The fourth response I would encourage you into is angry faith. So you've seen the problem of Jesus. He loves Mary, Martha, Lazarus, so he stayed put. He didn't go help. 
That is the problem. So what about the person of Jesus? So I, I just said the response to this is angry faith. Well, um, as we read on in the story, what we find is, is by the time Jesus gets to Lazarus, he has been dead for four days. Now that's important for a couple of reasons. One is Mary and Martha have meditated on Jesus' refusal to come immediately to help them for four days. They probably had some thoughts in that time. And they're ready to speak when Jesus comes. They've got some things to say to him. That's one thing important. The other thing that's important is Jewish theology in this day believed uh, after you died, days one through three, you were like mostly dead. You're dead, but mostly dead. Now, for those of you who have seen Monty Python and understand Monty Python theology, that bring out your much more, thank you. Like the first two services, I'm like, apparently I can't talk about Monty Python here. <laughs> some of y'all get it. Thank you. Right? There's a part, there's, there, it's, you know, a, a satirical moment of the plague, bring out your dead, and, and it's, well, he's mostly dead. That's sort of where you were for days one through three in the Jewish thing. But on day four, you were dead. There's no coming back. That's where Lazarus is. He is dead, and everyone knows he is dead. There's no coming back from this. So, Jesus finally comes. Martha hears Jesus is on his way. Martha gets up and runs out to meet Jesus. And when she does, she says this in verse 21. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now when I say angry faith, that's what I mean. Sentence one is, Lord, if you had not been here, or Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now it's important that we not read that like it's a precious moments translation where she's coming out with like snacks for Jesus and, hey, listen, I know my brother's died. It's kind of your fault, but it's all okay. Like that's not what's, like, again, back to my coach. Like I wanted to say some things to him with some edge. And no, no one died. I just was shanking golf balls. Imagine your brother dies. Jesus strolls up two days late. You probably, you got some things to say. This is pro- there's some probably, there's some edge to what she's saying, some anger. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's anger, but it's also, it's faith. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. You could have helped, you didn't. But Jesus, it hasn't changed who I think you are. It's essentially what Martha says. She holds verses 5 and 6 together. Jesus, I know you love me. I know who you are. I also know if you'd been here, my brother would have lived. It's angry faith. And that kicks off a bit of a theological discussion with them. Jesus responds to this statement by saying, your brother will rise again. To which Martha responds, I know that he will rise again on the resurrection on the last day. Which in Jewish thinking, at the very end of time, when God makes all things new, brings the new heavens and new earth, that is when everyone will be raised to life at the same time. The idea that one individual would be raised in the middle of history was not considered even possible to Jewish people in this day. That's very important. The idea that Lazarus or Jesus would be raised, not on anyone's mind. But yes, in the distant future, Lazarus will be raised from the dead. And then Jesus pipes in with something pretty outrageous. Martha's, uh, Martha's like, yeah, resurrection last time. I believe that. Jesus says, I 
in the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he or she die, yet, yet shall they live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Martha says, yes, Lazarus will be raised in the distant resurrection. I believe that, Jesus. And Jesus says, no. I am the resurrection and the life. That's me. The thing you're hoping for, off in the distant future, is here with you now in embodied form. I am the resurrection and the life. Martha, put your hope in me, not in that distant resurrection. That's pretty, that's pretty wild. And at least to, to a couple of things that we should, we should take away from this statement. is Jesus, one, is claiming to have power over death itself. He is resurrection life. There is nothing he can encounter that is more powerful than him. He can overcome death because he is the resurrection and the life. And if you die and yet you're connected to him, you don't stay dead. That's how it works with him. But the other shocking thing about this statement is Jesus doesn't say, I am the resurrection and the life, and how dare you accuse me of causing your brother's death? Doesn't say that. He receives her honesty and points her to the truth. And that's good news for you and me because however God has disappointed you or whatever you asked for help for and he didn't respond with, however angry your feelings are attached to that, he can take them. And he wants your honest, angry faith. He doesn't rebuke Martha for saying, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So that's Martha. We've got another sister. So all this happens with Martha, and it ends by Jesus asking, do you believe this? And Martha responds, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. So Martha leaves a pretty good place. But Mary, Mary's not come out yet. I think that's important because there's, there's one other story about a Mary and a Martha that I think is the same people here. And it's a story where Jesus was staying at their house, teaching out of their house. In that story we read, Martha is busy doing the works of hospitality, making sure the guests are taken care of, just being a good hostess. But Mary is sitting at the, the teaching of, of Jesus. She's at Jesus' feet. She's not helping Martha, her sister, do the work of hospitality in their home. So, so Martha's pretty upset. She, go, he goes, she goes, Jesus, like, what are we doing? Like, Mary's not helping. Mary should be helping. And Jesus says, no, Martha. Mary's chosen what's better. Martha, you don't have to put those works aside. Just come and sit at my feet, my teaching. Yet here in John 11, we have the reverse. Martha's gone out to meet Jesus. Mary has stayed back. I don't know why, but I think you can read into the text. Mary's really struggled with what Jesus has done. She's back. She's weeping. She hasn't come out yet. Martha has to go out to get, to get Mary and say, Jesus wants to speak to you. So finally, Mary's drawn out. She goes to Jesus. She stands in front of Jesus, and she says something that should sound very similar to us. She says, verse 32, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Both sisters essentially say to Jesus, we asked you to help us, and you didn't. But Jesus responds differently in this moment. There's no theological discussion. 
No debate about the resurrection, no outrageous claims from Jesus to Mary. This happens instead. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Jesus doesn't say anything other than where's the tomb. But we see three emotional reactions from him. He's, he's deeply moved, verse 33, which ordinarily English translations do a great job of, of getting what's at the Greek. Here, not so much. Because the Greek word here is anger to the level of wrath. I hear deeply moved and I think, wasn't the orchestra nice? It was deeply moving to me. That's not Jesus' response. He's angry to the point of wrath. He's greatly troubled. This is another word for anger. He's not confused. He's angry. And then he weeps. That's what Mary was doing. She was weeping. So Jesus weeps as well. And we learned a couple things about the person of, of Jesus here. One is Jesus is the perfect counselor. If any of you have, have been through a season of disappointment, you know there are times we need someone just to speak encouraging words to us. Come, man, pray Psalm 23 over me. One of the, my favorite moments of life, I was in a hard moment. I had a friend of me just grab me in a big bear hug and speak number six, the blessing over me. May the Lord bless you and keep you. And it was awesome. So the moments when I want, we want that, right? We want Jesus. Let's have a theological discussion, land on some truth. There are other times if you even pull, if you even start with the Lord is my shepherd, I'm running away from you because I don't want to hear it right now. I just, can you just sit with me in my anger, my, my pain, my tear? I don't want words. I don't need words right now. I need your presence. And Jesus is both. We're both sisters. Martha, he comes with power in theology Mary, he comes with presence and his tears. So Jesus is the perfect counselor. But the second thing we learn about Jesus in this passage is he's angrier about this broken world than you or I. And here's how I, I know this. So Jesus, he weeps at the tomb of Lazarus. Then we, we start moving towards what he's going to do. And he goes to the tomb and he says to them, take away the stone. To which the response is, Jesus, Lazarus is very dead, and he smells. Don't roll away the stone. They roll away the stone. And then Jesus, he prays, and then he speaks, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus comes out. That's the most response I've gotten out of three sermons so far. I just said Jesus raised a dead man back to life. And some of you are like, what time is lunch right now? I don't know. <laughs> Y'all, come on. Like Jesus says Lazarus come out and he comes out. And so much that you tell people are freaking out because Jesus has to tell them, hey, unbind him. He's still in his burial clothes. Let the man walk. He's been dead for four days. He's raised a dead man back to, to life. And listen, it's okay if you're like, dude, that, that's a claim. How can you be an intellectually credible person and believe that? And let me just say, so the person who wrote this gospel, John, uh, lived, uh, church tradition says, multiple, multiple sources attest to this outside the Bible. John lived to 80 years old, which means he told this story most likely for 50 years of his life. 
even though John himself saw his brother murdered for Jesus. James was the first Christian martyr. He watched his brother die. John himself was arrested. He was put on an island in prison for preaching the gospel. John has suffered enormously for Jesus, yet here he is at the age of 80, like, I know this sounds crazy, but Jesus raised this guy Lazarus from the dead, and he was very dead. He was dead four days, and yet he came out of the tomb. He saw, you can be intellectually credible and believe this. I mean, what else explains why you and I are here in Chesterton, Indiana, 2,000 years later, worshiping Jesus, a guy who lived thousands of years ago, thousands of miles away, unless something weird happened when Jesus walked this earth. And I think something weird happened, like Lazarus came out of the grave. So that, listen, you can be intellectually credible and, and believe that. But it raises the question, why is Jesus so emotionally unhinged if he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead? Why is he angry to the point of wrath? Why is he weeping before the tomb of Lazarus if he knows it's about to get really good? Like I just, listen, you should probably never say, if I was Jesus, this is what I would have done. Almost always something bad follows from that. But if I was Jesus... Man, I would have strolled up to that tomb, pulled out my, like, Lego Batman voice. I'm Jesus. Lazarus, come out. And yes, I just used Lego Batman's voice as Jesus. I'm aware of that. Do with that what you will. But that is what, man, like, power, right? But Jesus is weeping and he's angry at the tomb. Why? It makes no sense if he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. Why is he so angry? And the answer to that is I've left out a key part of the story. If you go back to the beginning of the chapter, the friends from Mary and Martha get to Jesus. Jesus, come and help. Lazarus is ill. And Jesus doesn't go. And if you read, the disciples are totally okay with that. They do not want to go and help Lazarus. Why not? Well, we're told. So Jesus waits two days. Then verse 7, Jesus says, Now let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? You see, Bethany was about two miles from Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem now, the religious authority was ready to try to kill Jesus. And the disciples understood, if you go to Bethany... The leaders are going to find out you're in Bethany, and they're going to come and get you. They want to kill you, Jesus. You can't go there. It's off limits. We can't go help Lazarus. They get in an extended discussion, which I don't have time to get into, but the plane lands with Jesus saying, I'm going to help Lazarus. And it ends by Thomas saying, verse 16, let us go also that we may die with him. The disciples are very clear on the stakes of what's happening. The only way Lazarus gets saved is if Jesus gets killed. The only way you get to Bethany and heal Lazarus is if Jesus puts his own life at stake. And that's exactly what happens. After Jesus raises the Lazarus from the dead, two responses. Verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, would come with Mary, seeing what he did, believed in him. But... Verse 53, so from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. 
Jesus gets on that road to Bethany to go heal Lazarus, knowing full well it's going to end in his own death. But he goes anyway. But that doesn't answer the question, why is he so angry at the tomb? Well, it's because he's not just going to deal with the death of Lazarus. He's not just going to deal with the evil of Lazarus' sickness. He's not just going to deal with the pain and the suffering of Mary and Martha in that moment. He gets on that road to Bethany to deal with death itself, to deal with illness itself, to deal with everything you and I have ever asked for help for from God. He's going to overcome death itself. And that's why when he sits at the tomb of Lazarus, he knows the moment he calls Lazarus out, his fate is sealed. He's going to a cross. And the good news for you and me is when Jesus got on that road to Bethany, he wasn't just going for Lazarus. He was going for you. He was going for me. To overcome everything that death has introduced into this world, everything we've ever asked for help for, Jesus was going to Bethany to raise Lazarus from the death, up the stakes, and go to his cross so that everything you and I have ever asked help from, we'd have our help. See, I don't, I don't know how to explain the cross in, in a way that does justice to what happened on the cross. But the closest I've ever experienced is an author named Francis Bufford who describes what Jesus was doing on the cross like this. The strain of his whole weight on his outstretched arm hurts too much. The pain fills him up, displaces thought, as much for him as it has for everyone else who has ever been stuck to one of these horrible contrivances. Or for anyone who dies in pain from any of the world's grim arsenal of possibilities. And yet he goes on taking it in. It's not what he does, it is what he is. He is all open door to sorrow, suffering, guilt, despair, horror, everything that cannot be escaped. And he does not even try to escape it. He turns to meet it and claim it all as his own now. This is mine, he is saying. And he embraces it with all that is left in him. Each dark act, each dripping memory, as if it were something precious, as if it were itself the, love, the loved child tottering homeward on the road. But there's so much of it. So many injured children so many locked rooms, so much lonely anger, so many bombs in public places, so much vicious zeal, so many bored teenagers at roadblocks, so many jokes that go too far, so much ruining greed, so much sick ingenuity, so much burned skin. The world he claims, claims him. It burns and stings, it splinters and gouges, it locks him round and drags him down. I think outside Lazarus' tomb, that's what he was taking in. How evil and broken this world is. And how he was going to claim that all for himself and let it drag him down into a tomb. And he did. And that's the person of Jesus. But why do this? Why go to a cross like this? And ultimately it's it's to offer you and I a promise. See, I find it interesting in both tombs, both Lazarus' tomb and Jesus' tomb, they roll a stone in front of it, which I've always just found curious because 
It's like nothing inside is getting out, so why put a stone in front of it? And yet we do that, and we still do that. When we bury someone, we put a lot of dirt on top of them, and we, we, mark, a, we mark it with a stone. And I think we do that because the stone communicates the end. Story is over. And we do that. We do that to things that, that happen to us. We ask God for help. He didn't provide what we asked, so we put that in a tomb, all that death, and we, we cover it with a stone. We're not going back there. And maybe our faith in God persists. Maybe it doesn't. But we put a stone in front of the tomb because that's where dead things are, and we don't want to be reminded of what is dead. Or eventually all of us. We're all headed for a tomb. That's the end of all our stories, right? To be marked with a stone to say the end. And for some of us, that's how we view this life. One life, it's over, roll the stone, it's done. And so I, I want to ask you this morning, what, what have you rolled a stone over in your own life and said, it's over, there's no life coming from that death, there's no hope coming from what I've experienced, I asked for help, it didn't come, it's over. What have you rolled a stone over in your life that's maybe snuffed out faith, led you down the path? You wish you could get off, but like Samuel Beckett, you're angry at God for not existing. Oh, that's okay. That's why Jesus let the two sisters say, if you'd been here, none of this would have happened. Because Jesus' response to that is, well, I'm here to do something about all that. I'm on this road to Bethany to raise your brother to life and then to head to my cross so that with Jesus we can announce as Christians there is no story that is ever over. We don't put the ends on any of our own lives or any of the evil things that have happened to us that have led us to ask God for help even in his silence. There's no story in the gospel that says it's over because Jesus has made clear he has power over death itself. And so Jesus He takes all of that into himself on the cross. He's buried into a tomb. The son of God of this universe is put in a tomb. And they put a stone in front of it. And then we read at the end of John's gospel, on the first day of the week, Mary, a different Mary, Mary came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. My own translation, somebody got out. And that's the symbol of our faith, is an empty tomb. It's a tomb. We're not naive. We know this world as it is. There's death. But we don't put a stone over whatever death has for us because we believe Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and he can speak into that tomb and call out life where there is death. Or, as it was put in The Lord of the Rings, when Samwise Ganji speaks to Gandalf after he saw Gandalf die, and he's confused. You're dead. Why are you here? We read, Sam lay back and stared with open mouth, and for a moment, between bewilderment and great joy, he could not answer. At last he gasped, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? That's the Christian life. To say everything sad one day will come untrue and something has happened in this world. And so this morning, wherever you are, I want to invite you to to one of two responses. 
One, maybe you, like Mary and Martha, asked God for help at one time and he, he did not come. And you're still waiting. I want to invite you, we, if you've got a bulletin, you have a connection card, write that, write that down. We have a table with a stone on it on your way out. We would love to pray for you around that this week. It's okay if, if you don't believe in that God can raise life where there is death. Yeah, we'll believe that for you. We'll pray that for you this week. So write that down. You've got a few minutes, and if you, you know something right now, I, ignore me. The rest of the sermon, write that down. Leave it on the table on the way out. Or second, you've never responded to Jesus' question that he asked Martha, do you believe? Do you believe this? And yet a few minutes ago when I said, when, when Jesus started on that road to Bethany, he was not just coming for Lazarus, he was coming for you. Your heart leapt a bit. And I just want to say, it wasn't me and that wasn't you. That was the Lord Jesus pursuing you. So let him catch you. Let him roll your own stone away and show you his resurrection life. So why today I'm going to celebrate like crazy. We're going to dress our kids in pastels, even though no one should wear pastels. I'm going to eat too much ham, I'm going to have a full belly, and I'm going to take a resurrection life nap later today. Because he is alive and his power and his mercy and his grace and his might knows no end. And I say that not as some naive pastor who doesn't have my own list of things I've asked for help for and I've heard silence in response. The last year for me in many ways has been brutal. I've asked God for help on a number of fronts and I've been met with his silence. And I'm okay with that because what John 11 tells me is his silence does not mean his absence. That while he's not coming to Mary and Martha right away, he's plotting. He's moving not just to deal with Lazarus, but to deal with you and me. His silence in your life does not mean his absence. He's moving on your behalf. He's already moved on your behalf. He's coming, and his power is limitless. He can make the dead live. He can make everything sad come untrue. And he wants to do that for you. That what Jesus said to Martha is as true this morning as it was the day he spoke to her. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though you die, you shall live. Do you believe this? Let's pray. Father, give us eyes and hearts of faith. For those of us who are in the place of waiting, we asked, we haven't received yet. Give us the strength and the courage, the honesty, the faith to wait. For those of us who have never called on faith in Jesus, open our hearts. And to, to those who would, as we're going to sing in a minute, would say, our only hope in life and death is that we belong to you. God, make that more true today than ever and more true every day as we go about this life. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being with us today. If you'd like more information on our church or a place to connect, you can check us out on the web at findliberty.net.